0: we are today under new ownership, we're up about 35 to 40 percent. We don't believe we'll ever get back to those figures of the early 90s. And we're not looking to. We're looking for a comfortable, manageable level Like, what is the right scale and trying to achieve economic sustainability while looking at environment, while looking at social responsibility, while looking at the best Experience for the guests. We are where we want to be.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. The storm expands west. I've got some more to say about that, but first, a reminder to subscribe to the free storm skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. I've got some monster podcasts coming up over the next few months, and the very best way to experience those is through the newsletter. Yes, the podcasts are available on iTunes, Spotify, etc., but the newsletter includes all kinds of additional context around the interview, as well as regular non-podcast updates where I discuss everything going on in the world of lift-serve skiing, especially the ever-evolving past landscape. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to this, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format, bi-annual print title celebrating mountain culture. When this thing drops on your porch, and I say that because it's too big to fit in your mailbox, you're going to wonder whether you should read this thing or frame it. The cover to the most recent issue, 195, will absolutely floor you. It captures a hotshot firefighter mid-blaze, battling one of last year's monster wildfires. And it's also unfortunately timely as those fires have ignited once again across the West. It's not all drama though, it's also a lot of fun. Photographer Jason Roman drags us down snowy roads on motorcycles with the Crazy Eights Motorcycle Club in upstate New York. And Ryan Salm's ecstatic photo essay on cliff jumping will have you Googling directions to your nearest mountain swim hole. Mountain Gazette owner and editor Mike Rogie is the engine driving this whole thing, and his opening editorial is absolutely beautiful. It's the kind of thing you read slowly and repeatedly. And when you do get to that firefighting essay by Amanda Monti, you're going to be moved by the courage and dedication of the firefighters and appalled by how little we pay them to risk their lives for half the year there's a whole lot more, you need to subscribe today at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That will ensure that you get issue 196 when it drops this fall. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go hire. Episode 53, David Norton, CEO of Towski Valley, New Mexico. Into the West. For those of you who are catching the podcast for the first time, first of all, welcome. Second, just a little background. I launched the Storm Skiing podcast two years ago with a focus on the Northeast, but I tiptoed into the West with a series of COVID-focused episodes and with ongoing past coverage, And I decided there was no reason to keep tying this thing to a small region of the country. I've been skiing the West for more than 25 years, and I am incredibly amped to get to know the folks running those mountains. For those of you in the Northeast who come to rely on this platform as a conduit to your local mountains, don't worry. I'm not abandoning the Northeast. While I'm broadening the scope, I have plenty of Northeast episodes still in the pipeline for this fall. I still live in the Northeast. I still love skiing there and I will continue to cover the region in earnest. And hey, if you're going to go west, why not start with one of the giants? There may not be a more magical place in U.S. skiing than Taos. The mountain may be on the Icon Pass, but you're not going to find the chaos and crowding that you will along the I-70 corridor or around Tahoe. Taos is remote and improbable and easy to overlook. But it's worth the journey, not just for the killer terrain and atmosphere, but to witness the renaissance that's taken place since Lewis Bacon bought Taos from the family of founder Ernie Blake back in 2014. He's dropped in new lifts, transformed Taos into the most environmentally wired ski area in the country, and ramped the business back to growth. But he's far from done. Taos recently dropped a master plan that will completely update and modernize the ski area. and We're going to hear all about it today. Let's do it. My guest today has been the Chief Executive Officer of Taos Ski Valley, New Mexico, since 2016. Taos has 14 lifts and a gondola serving 1,294 acres on 3,281 vertical feet of terrain. The resort averages 300 inches of snow per year. Prior to taking the top job at Taos, he spent more than two decades in real estate development in several mountain towns, including Stowe and Aspen. David Norton is my guest. David, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me, Stuart.
1: David, let's start with your career prior to joining Taos here. Uh, you weren't always in ski resort management, so what were you doing with yourself before you moved out to New Mexico?
0: Well, immediately prior to moving to New Mexico, I had my own firm. It was a resort development company. I, I had that for about 10 years. But my my career started, interestingly enough, in Japan. Uh, I was in Japan in the early 1990s. This was, I call it the go go days, a very, very strong economy. Japan was, was moving its economy into uh, resort development and leisure, developing golf courses, marinas, water parks, and ski areas. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I was uh, asked to uh, assist a consulting firm that was doing some resort design work. Uh, I knew nothing about resorts. I knew nothing about design work, but the uh, the Japanese company said, well, you're American, you understand leisure, and you can speak Japanese, and you can help us get uh, knowledgeable experts from around the world here to to train us, and to teach us, and to educate us on how to develop the resort business. So I started in Japan. Uh, I we ended up building a resort in japan ended up building a resort in in korea so from the very beginning of my career it was more on the build side than the operating side uh eventually started a family wanted to get back to the states and worked for se group which is a really the preeminent planning company when it comes to uh, ski resort uh design uh, so we went from development work in japan to design and planning work with se group eventually that led into uh, additional types of developments uh, one in aspen the aspen highlands village project and then the Stowe revitalization of spruce peak so it's been a series of steps moving through uh actually different parts of the world uh, after after visiting or working in stowe uh, there was a a wine country development in in Argentina. So went to Argentina and got involved with with the wine business there. Uh, still, you know, second homes, still development. Uh, we introduced a golf course there, so still resort and leisure. Uh, so it's been a series of of projects, uh, different parts of the world, and most recently now in in Taos, New Mexico.
1: So when you say that you were doing resort development, David, at Aspen Highlands and at Spruce at Stowe and and overseas, were these primarily focused on the real estate portion and the building of the nice little pedestrian villages that they have at those resorts? Uh, Or was there a, a, a ski mountain component to that as well, where you were looking at trails and lifts and how they interact with the villages? It was primarily real estate development. Now, you
0: have to integrate with the mountain. You have to integrate with Ski and Ski Out. You have to integrate with some trail development, some lift development. And once these properties are built, you have to determine how to, how to operate them, property management, things like that. So there is an operational piece, but the, the primary, the primary uh, role that I took was on uh, real estate development.
1: So that takes us to Taos. How did that opportunity come up, and why was it a compelling opportunity for you?
0: Well, it was a great and very, very compelling opportunity because it's a great mountain, an incredible brand, a great owner, and a, and a great vision going forward. Uh, to to be involved with what I call a renaissance. You know, we saw the renaissance of Stowe. It was it was tired, and to go through a complete remake at Stowe was uh, exciting, one of the most exciting things I've done in my career, and to be able to do it again at Taos, to take a great mountain that that hadn't seen a lot of investment over a 20-year span. And what's interesting is in 1994, Taos and Jackson, uh, Sun Valley and Telluride were basically all at par. Uh, Three of those resorts really advanced through reinvestment and and investment in, in air service. And Taos did not go that way. Skier visits dropped off, market share dropped off, and in in 2014, you know, 20 years later, uh, it was a resort that kind of lost its its brand and lost its uh, its shine, and it was time for a revitalization. So to be able to have an opportunity to revitalize such an outstanding, um, historic, iconic, independent brand was was extreme was very very compelling
1: well david you're certainly very well positioned to reinvigorate the the base area part of the resort and that that sort of pedestrian hub i've been to both of those developments at aspen highlands and stowe they're very impressive very nice uh it, it creates a really great experience to be there in another dimension uh, but but help us understand now that you're in charge of the whole mountain what was that learning curve like to to have to learn about things like avalanche mitigation and and lift maintenance and Grooming and and snowmaking, and and all these pieces that make a resort go. uh, How big of a lift has that been, and and how have you gone about doing that?
0: Sure. The the resort operation at TAS was uh, extraordinary and with a very, very good team. And you're right, ski resorts are complex with dozens of different types of businesses. You've got a a lodging piece, you've got a, a food and beverage piece, you've got a vehicle maintenance piece you've got uh, hospitality on mountain guest services so there's you know I look at it as several uh, small businesses and what what we tried to do early on was to create ownership for each developer for each di- director or manager of that business unit and and the and the biggest learning curve for me was how to give that opportunity and how to pre- prepare the organization for that change in management style where you're really looking for uh, ownership of those business units but also ex- extensive and expansive change in the with the, with the bringing on of of a hotel service bringing on a transportation service and 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 who knew at that time that we would end up with Taus air? Right. So, um, the, the idea was to make you're creating these 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 business units and, and bringing them all together. So, but I was very fortunate because the operation was in was in great shape, and the the snowmaking teams, the grooming teams. I think we've got one of the best lift maintenance operations in the in the business. We've got a fantastic patrol. So we had a very experienced team. Uh, I was surprised at how many people who had twenty or 30, or 40, or even 50 years of tenure in the organization. So it was simply how do we leverage them for what they bring, and but bring a little bit of extra business acumen to the table because that was necessary, and be able to manage the group through, through change, which is the biggest challenge for a, a property that had seen so little change and so little reinvestment over the 20-year period.
1: You mentioned 2014, David, as a, a turning point year. And that's the year that the founder, uh, the, the family of the founder of Taos, Ernie Blake, sold the resort to Lewis Bacon. I want to get to Bacon's tenure in a moment. Uh, but first, can you just talk a little bit about the Blake's stewardship of the resort and how that's made Taos what it is today?
0: Well, Ernie Blake uh, discovered the mountain as he was flying from New Mexico to Colorado between two smaller resorts that he was the general manager of in his Cessna plane. And he flew over Kachina Peak and looked down and saw these amazing snow fields. This is 1954, 1955, and decided this was the spot for a resort that he would introduce. Uh, the Blake family had been involved ever since, and his children were involved, his grandchildren were involved. And to this day, you'll hear stories about Ernie or Rhoda Blake or Mickey Blake or Adriana Blake. And and you hear these stories. Uh, it was truly a family run business. They they some of the, the children grew up in the ski valley, in the Towski Valley. So it's a it's an incredible legacy. Uh, many of the Blakes still live in. In New Mexico, many of them visit and and ski. Ernie passed away in the late 80s. Mickey took over and he had the reign. That was his son. He had the rain through the mid-2000 teens. And then the the property changed ownership for the first time since it was founded by Ernie.
1: Yeah, that legacy is really inseparable from the resort and what it's become. And when the Blakes did decide that they're ready to sell, they weren't going to sell to just anyone. And I thought this was interesting. When I was reading the New York Times about the sale, uh, the Blakes sold to Bacon because he would, quote, do things their way, end quote. Uh, I realize this was a little bit before your time because Bacon bought the resort in 2014 and you didn't arrive till 2016. Uh, But what can you tell us about that process of the Blakes handing off to Bacon and saying, okay, we trust you. You're going to take care of this place. You're going to keep Taos Taos, but modernize it and do all the things that it needs to do that we're just not in a position to do anymore.
0: Yeah, I think they saw a few things. Um, and. The, uh, it was more, more than do things their way. I think what the Blake saw was somebody that could do things that they had envisioned. And there were a lot of plans. There were plans for on-mountain improvements. There were plans for base area improvements. And the, they knew that Lewis Bacon had, had the resources to carry out some of those plans that had a long-term vision and really um, patient capital. So I think they saw a, a great opportunity. Uh, Lewis had owned property at Towski Valley since the 1990s. So he had a, a, a love for the area, and he's been known for other properties that he's owned where he has taken a, long, a long-range view and, and an excellent level of stewardship. There's a property in Colorado where Lewis has put 175,000 acres into a conservation easement. So he is a conservation philanthropist. And I think those actions that he has taken in the past really let the Blakes feel that this property would be in good hands uh, with Lewis.
1: You know, if you look around the, the United States ski landscape, there are really not a lot of large independent resorts left. Do you have a sense of, of why it was important for the Blakes to sell to, to an individual who would be a steward of it rather than sell to Vail or, or uh, Elser wasn't around at the time, but IntraWest or, or some other large company? Was there, was there a reasoning behind that or, or were they just looking for the best owner? Well, I, I,
0: think, I think part of it was, uh, how do we keep this independent? And during the Blake era, it was a family owned business. It now still is a family-owned business. So I, I really think that the Blakes were looking for somebody that can that can keep this the, the one the legacy of the resort, keep the essence of skiing, keep the intimacy of the area, keep the the, the culture intact. And the best way to do that was with an individual rather than a, a corporation that would pro, that would likely change things to, to meet their standards and guidelines of operation.
1: Do you have a relationship with the Blake's David? Are they still involved in any way? Yes. Yep. Are are they still involved in the resort in any way, in any formal capacity or are they, they just skiers? Uh, What's their relationship?
0: Uh, They're, they're not involved with the resort. Although I will say Mickey is a great radio guy. And currently (laughs) we're reaching out to Mickey Say, Mickey, we've got these repeaters all over the mountain. How did you set this up? <laughs> uh, so, there's, there's frequently things that come up. We'll reach out to Mickey and, and his wife Anne. We'll reach out to Hano, uh, his son. Uh, we'll reach out to uh, actually Ernie's son in law, Chris Stagg, still works for us. So, there is a bit of a family connection. There is no overlap in operation. There is no over, overlap in, in ownership, but we do reach out on occasion. And we've, we've, we've thrown a few Blake family reunions to get the family back on site so we could hear the stories and, and reminisce in what was and try to bring some of those ideas forward as we, as we continue with our, with our
1: advancements. That's tremendous. Well, since Bacon's taken over, he has certainly made good on his promise to modernize the ski area. As you said, Taos had been knocked off its pedestal a little bit from the 90s when it would do around 350,000 skier visits a year. Uh, That number declined to as low as 160,000. What did Taos look like when Lewis showed up seven years ago?
0: Oh, I think it looked like a resort that was uh, seen its Best uh, in prior years, Uh, I I think the property was a a bit tired. Some of the infrastructure was tired. You know, we still have some of the lifts, some of the older. I think you saw a a resort with aging infrastructure and one that has lost its brand awareness and one that lost its market share. Certainly the locals, the, the love and the passion for the mountain, that never went away. The great skiing never went away. But as as with any business, a lack of reinvestment and you start to go backwards. I, there was a, a growing list of deferred maintenance across the property, and it was it was time. It was time to work on revitalization and renewal.
1: And I want to talk about some of those upgrades and in infrastructure and investments. Uh, but first, I want to actually talk about the environmental component of this because. Understanding this is so fundamental to what Taos is in the, in the image of what it what it strives to become. So Taos is the first and I believe it is still the only North American Ski Resort to become a certified B Corporation. So tell us, David, what does that mean and what does it say about Taos' ownership and their commitment to environmental sustainability?
0: Well, for us, this means a lot. And it's, it's not only environmental sustainability, but it's, it's social responsibility as well. Uh, B-corporations are those organizations that are assessed on their economic contribution, their environmental sensitivity, and social responsibility. And the, the motto of the organization is using business as a force for good. Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, New Belgium Brewing, now Danone, a great multinational, are well-recognized B-corporation brands. And we are the first ski resort to be certified as a B Corporation, and we are, you're right, we are the only ski resort certified as a B Corporation in the world. I I think that'll change over time. We hope that changes over time. But what it means for us is we're surrounded by businesses that have some of the best management practices. They have some of the best environmental practices. They have some of the best social responsibility practices, and those are practices that we can That we can learn from. We've been host to the B Corporation Leadership Summit first ever. It was a 10-year anniversary of a a short celebration of the the development of the B Corporation movement, but more importantly, envisioning what the next 10 years would be. Uh, So those things are taking place in Taos. Uh, As a B Corporation, we're required to recertify every three years, and we just recertified a year ago, so we're on our second three-year term. We are very pleased with uh, being designated. Uh, It's really helped us with our recruiting as the uh, uh, millennial generation is very astute and aware of climate issues and social responsibility issues, so the recruiting has worked out very very nicely and it has helped us align the organization with a strong sense of purpose uh, towards both environmental and social responsibility.
1: Recently, Bell, Terra, Boyne, and Powder banded together and announced a an expansive climate initiative, um, which frankly was a little short on specifics. Have they, and anyone from any of those companies, reached out to Taos to talk about that that uh, B certification and how they could attain something similar?
0: Not yet. Uh, we, we've had a couple of resorts reach out to us and look at the B Corporation and try to determine whether they wanted to approach the same. Uh, Our philosophy has been to to do the work, right? And and advocacy is important, but more than advocacy, we believe that if we do the work and if we heat and cool our new hotel with a geothermal well field and we eliminate the use of plastics and we have a, a pay equity structure where all people make the same, work in the same job, make the same pay regardless of of age or race or gender. Um, paying a living wage. You know, there's a lot of things we do. Actually, we have a, we call it 101 ways and counting, the 101 things that we're doing to become a B Corporation. Uh, EV initiatives, you know, really look into uh, electrification of our fleet and of our entire resource. So our belief is let's do the work. And ideally, people will recognize that and we could become a model for change.
1: It sounds like Taos has come to the conclusion that the, the cost, whatever cost it takes to put these things in place, there, there are benefits, um, both intangible and tangible. Can you just talk a little bit about as far as Bacon taking over, I'm sure he doesn't want to lose money on the business, um, about this process of, of being environmentally responsible, but still running a, a healthy, profitable, sustainable business and why maybe this perception that you can't have both is wrong.
0: Well, I think that's a little bit of a notion that is quickly becoming outdated, where you know, there was always an idea that LEED certified building would cost you more and to run environmental programs would, would cost you more. But we're finding that we we think that the economic return can be greater when you're looking at both environmental and social issues. With With proper pay, you've got staff that are motivated and aligned and efficient with uh the reduction of plastics you're removing the amount of waste you're putting into the system. Uh you know with uh with the, the 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 affordable housing and some of the some of the transit systems we have we're we're able to uh have some of the best recruiting years we've had over the last 2 or 3 or 4 years and some of those recruiting costs may drop a little bit. So we we don't think they're independent of, of each other being economically uh uh sustainable and with environmental sensitivity and, and social responsibility.
1: All right, let's talk about the mountain here. So one of Bacon's first projects was a big one and a controversial one. That triple chair up Kachina Peak ran almost 1,100 vertical feet. Uh, this was long been part of the resort, but it's hiked to terrain. And I realize again, David, that this was before your time. Uh, but it seemed that the locals, by many accounts, did not love this idea when it went in. But help us understand, how is that sentiment evolved around the Kachina chair in the intervening years. Yeah, there was concern when the when the lift went in and after it went in,
0: you know, people were saying this was our our hike to terrain. And this is a uh, really kind of special terrain where maybe it should not be lift served at all. Uh, today on a busy day, you'll see mostly locals on the lift. And, and I think people are really starting to appreciate it. But one of the things we did is we really tried to understand how to to manage the terrain and you know we we've, we have good winter storms like other resorts sometimes you know you'll get a, a 12 inches or a 24 inch storm and we've set up a a, a a sequence for the opening of kachina peak where day one is the storm day two is when we do our control work now keep in mind you can ski other parts of the mountain day three is hike only and day four we spin the lift so we really found a balance where everybody you know it's a little bit of the best of all worlds. Uh, day four is when we we spin the lift, and very often there's fresh powder, so not many places you can go where you're getting fresh fresh lines three or four days after the storm. So day one storm, day two control, day three hike, day four lift. that's the process we take and and people are aware of that. So that seems to be working out nicely overall. It's nice having the lift. more people are are taking advantage of skiing in Kachina Peak, which is a an outstanding uh, aspect of what we have at Taos and a really, really fantastic terrain,
1: uh, probably some of the best high alpine terrain in the country It really is it, it, and it can get rough up there. Do, do you have a problem with people going up there that should not be up there?
0: Well, ideally, uh, you know people need to self, self-select. And again, in the early, when we first opened the lift, the the lift maze was configured in a way that that anybody could just simply ski down and jump on the lift. And some people were finding themselves on the peak who really shouldn't have been there. So we reconfigured the lift maze. We made it almost a small hike to lift maze. Uh, so you had to go for a small little hike. The maze itself is actually quite steep. And we decided if you can't do the small hike and then negotiate the maze itself, you shouldn't be on Kachina Peak. So we, we actually made it challenging to get on the on the lift to ensure that there was a little bit of a culling process uh, so that only advanced skiers would be up on Kachina Peak.
1: That's an interesting mitigation strategy. Um, another lift that was actually a lift replacement and a lift that – pretty much everyone has to ride, although some of them might be pretty scared going over the bumps on owls on their way up, was lift one. And you actually, uh, Taos actually installed its first high speed quad. I was surprised when I read this. Um, this was just three years ago. Uh, how was that received? W- were, were locals pretty happy to have a modern updated chair or, or was there some sentimentality for that old school feel of, of, hey, this is Taos, you know, we don't, we don't need all that fancy stuff? I think there was a little bit of sentimentality, but
0: it, it probably lasted about fifteen minutes. Uh, <laughs> most, most people really said what what took you so long? Right. And and the, the the perfect example I remember we were to year two or year three in this Renaissance and I was interviewed by a radio and uh I was getting all sorts of questions about Kachina Peak Lift, Lift One, the 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 detachable lift, the Blake, you know, these, these changes that are coming And I was very curious as to where the interviewer was going. And at one point he said, you know, I've been skiing Taos for 30 or 40 years. My favorite runs are Pollux and Castor. If I can get there a little quicker and a little bit more comfortably. Why not? And so the, the mountain really has not changed the trails haven't changed the 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 extensive network and the the different challenging terrain a lot of the on-mountain hasn't changed the infrastructure has been improved so with lift one i think mostly we've had a lot of kudos on that one and as we are advancing with our master development plan for the next 10-year period under the forest service special use permit the number one request from the public is to continue to mod- modernize our lift infrastructure.
1: And we'll go over those one by one in a little bit here. Curious about lift one, that's really your workhorse, get people up out of the base. Has that helped clear up congestion a little bit down there?
0: It has. And, and you know, one of the things about our complete renaissance that we're working through is 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 really to try to find the balance. And one of the Great things about Taos is the sense of intimacy and the sense of scale and the friends of sense of friendships that you create. And we really are looking to avoid the crowds. And Lift One has done a nice job of moving people out of the base area. But as we go forward with this, with this revitalization work, we will continue to look at visitation levels to make sure we don't see excessive crowding. Throughout the resorts, we can maintain that sense of intimacy and really uh, stay true to the essence of of the sport.
1: So, before we get into the master plan and and all the new lifts that could be going up, I just want to talk a little bit about your overhauled beginner area, which is at the base of lift one. So, you've done all sorts of things down there. Added a gondolita. You have a new triple chair. Just go over the changes down there and and why you've done all that and how it's changed the experience for beginners, families. Others who come to and not necessarily to go up Kachina.
0: Yeah, this, is, this was a big move and one that we're very, very proud of. Uh, we call it the perfect progression. And we were looking to renovate what we now call the Rio Hondo Learning Center and first make it as easy as possible to arrive. So it's got to its own drop off. If you're in the main base area, you can take a short pulse gondola. We call it the gondolita. It's a small gondola to get there so we want to make it very easy to arrive then we want to make it easy to drop off and as the kids come in with their family one of the hardest things is is to watch children become separated from their from their parents so we put in a, a an old chairlift where that's where they would you would weigh the child and they would stand next to an aspen tree to figure out their height and we had a small area with with slack lines and a rock climbing wall so that so the children would, would almost run towards these activities and break that bond with the parents, so, so make it very easy to drop off from the parents. Before you know it, the kids were excited to be with other children, and, and you know, they'd actually forget to say bye to the parents, rather than clinging on to them at the check-in counter. Um, once they were in the space, the space is big, it's bright, it's very simple. So the, the the space was organized for different age groups. This is on the second floor once you move to the second floor. And then once you move out onto the, the, the trail system, we recontoured the entire slope so that we have a flat area for the first time skier, a 6% grade, an 8% grade, a 10% grade, a 10% grade off of the gondolita with a nice long run then to a 14% and 18%, and eventually to a 25% grade. So on different sections of this beginner area, a progression of grades so that you'd have the perfect progression of instruction. And if you could ski that final 25% grade, you could then graduate to lift one and go up on the big mountain and ski the green trail down with confidence. So all of that was designed into this renovated uh learn to ski area uh called the Rio Hondo Learning Center. And again, it has worked uh beautifully. So we're very pleased with that improvement.
1: And has that worked to bring more families into the mountain? Because you look at the trail map and it's it's a lot of blacks and it's a tough, tough mountain. Uh but has word gotten around that hey, we're we're we have a better progression now to really get you from the bottom up to the top of lift one and, and skiing some of these long meandering runs. No question. And Taz was always
0: known for the advanced skiing. And this snow this sports school was designed not simply to teach you how to ski, but to teach you how to ski better. And we have instruction level one, level two, level three, but also instruction level eight, level nine, level whatever level skier you are, you can take a lesson and instruction to improve. So you're right, we've got some some of the most challenging terrain, and a lot of our terrain is black or double double black diamond. But the Rio Honda Learning Center is a way to get the families in, get people introduced to the sport, but then we've got great instruction that not only ends there, but advances as you get up onto the big mountain.
1: A little more subtle change that Taos has undergone, David, is is the widespread thinning of more glades. And, and this is interesting for a couple of reasons. For, from a ski point of view, of course, I love it. That makes more interesting terrain. It makes the mountain ski bigger uh, without having to expand your footprint. But if, if, as you look at the wildfires growing across the West, a lot of folks are pointing to a lack of fire mitigation as one of the primary causes here. Um, So when Taos has done this deliberate thinning of the woods, it's not just for skiing. Uh, This has actually been done in a partnership with the Nature Conservancy and the Forest Service. So tell us about this partnership and what you're trying to achieve here. This partnership may be the first or
0: single reason why we decided to pursue B Corp certification. Uh, About 10 years ago, the Lost Conscious Fire Northwest of Santa Fe burned strong and hot and fast, a couple hundred thousand acres. And after the fire, the rains came and contaminated the river and the drinking water of Santa Fe and Albuquerque. The Nature Conservancy of Northern New Mexico decided that something must be done and they created the Rio Grande Water Fund. This is a 20 year 600,000 acre multi-billion dollar project to enhance the health of the forest of northern New Mexico and southern Colorado, reduce wildfire risk, and protect the source waters of the Rio Grande. There are over 75 signatories on this deal. We are a signatory, the Forest Service is a signatory, several of the Native American nations are are signatories, many private landowners. And over the course of, we're probably going on five or six years, every year we've got thinning projects to go into the forest and remove the dead or the diseased trees, the ladder fuels and the combustibles so that we have a healthier forest that will withstand wildfire risk and ideally protect the source waters. Uh, This year, we worked on several hundred acres on our property, and you can see the difference. You can see a much healthier forest. It's thinned out. It's breathing better. The strong trees are stronger. The weak trees are gone. And, yeah, we end up with some... Better terrain. The Wild West is the perfect example. We've been working on that terrain for several years and, and Ernie's North Americans, great gladed terrain. So as we go in and do this thinning, of course, we have an eye towards skiability. And this is some of the best new terrain that we have. These skiable glades that have been thinned to work with the nature conservancy and the forest service.
1: Can you tell us where those trees have been thinned this year in relation to the trail map?
0: In relation to the trail, map, the biggest area that we've worked on is below Lift 8. And the reason for that, and it does get a little bit into the master development plan, is the westernmost portion of our mountain, the Stauffenberg Trail, Wild West, Lift 8, all the way down to the river basin below Lift 8, is the place where we've got the most thinning work that has been done open ski terrain snow making system and a to be constructed five million gallon water tank so that this would be the ultimate fire break if fire started down the canyon any type of fire will come up the canyon in this location with a five million gallon gallon fire suppression system and this thinned band would be the the fire break necessary to protect all of the village of Towski Valley.
1: Wow. Well, let's talk about the master plan, David. Lay this out for us. What's going to happen? What's going to change? And how fast is it going to happen?
0: Well, I think whenever we talk about the master development plan, it's often important to say what we're not doing. Uh, Towski Valley, we have 1,200 acres under special use permit and surrounding us is wilderness land which means we can't expand our boundary. We can't go on to the next peak or the next basin or the next bowl. And in the base area, we've got a, it's a very steep and tight Canyon. It's a box Canyon with very little place to go. So that's where we come up with this unique opportunity where we talk about things being better, not bigger. This whole idea is to refine things, but not to grow. And to, and to maintain the level of intimacy that that house has always had so growth is not a big thing that we're looking for but improvement and refinement is uh, so in the master plan one of those refinements is connecting our main base area to the kachina basin with a base-to-base gondola so that'd be a, a people mover that that would run uh many months of the year not just not just the winter months any Lift that is aging is in the plan for for uh, replacement. We are looking to upgrade the on mountain dining facilities and possibly add one. We're looking to add a five million gallon water tank that I was just sharing with you that would be on the mountain that could provide gravity feed fire suppression during the fire season, but also water during the winter snowmaking season. And then we're looking to put in a a Nordic track as people are looking more to get into some other activities outside of out of skiing. So those are the primary changes. It's mostly upgrades and and again, refinement and removal of of aging infrastructure and modernizing the the plant. Uh, But the big the big notable pieces are the base to base gondola, the water tank and some on mountain dining upgrades.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about that base-to-base Gondola. Uh, that's a really interesting project because, as you said, you have a very tight base area. So take us through exactly how that lift would just improve the flow and the experience of getting around the resort.
0: Well, right now, uh, there's there's really two or three ways to look at this. One is moving from our main village up to Kachina Basin. We're at 9,000 feet. Kachina Basin is at a little bit over 10,000 feet and there's a windy dirt road that connects the two. So whether it's a dirt road in the summer or a snowy road in the winter, it's a difficult road to to navigate and to contemplate. Uh, It can be dusty, it can be a little dangerous, it could be a little slick. So just basic transportation between the two areas will will improve greatly. Uh, You mentioned earlier lift one out of the base area, our our new high-speed lift. Uh, there is no redundancy. So if that lift goes down, uh, we have no uphill access. So this gondola lift would allow us a, a second way out of the main base area. We are also getting into more summer activities with mountain biking, via ferrata, weddings, conferences. So to be able to move easily from the main base area to Kachina Basin on a people mover would be wonderful. And ultimately, we are looking to have a clean energy transportation system that starts in the town of Taos and moves up the 150 highway corridor, which is a state highway, using electric vehicle shuttle buses. And we are working with the local bus organization to do just that to create a scenic byway in this access point. So there's there's no there's no sprawl along this road. You're driving up a beautiful river um bed and basin towards the ski area. And then our our arrival sequence will be completely revitalized with uh, EV charges, which we already have, a, a drop-off area for the for the mass transit, a, a beautification plan for a nice arrival into the resort. And then finally connecting the base this location with the gauntlet to Kachina Basin fully electrified. So a clean energy transportation system that connects the town House all the way up through the valley to Kachina Basin is the is the big idea.
1: And when this gondola is in place, is it going to be two ways or do skiers have to ski back down Rubizal? You would be able to take
0: the, the lift down if you'd like to.
1: And next up we have lifts two and four. Those are two early 90s Poma quads. What do you have in mind to replace each of those? Are you sticking with fixed grips, going detachable? Is that TBD? Where's your head at?
0: Lift four, which is on the backside, will likely be a detachable quad. We're not looking to go to six-pack or eight-pack. Again, it's all about scale for us. We want to keep the scale down. Uh, one of the reasons why we're going with the detachable is because this is where our summer operation is off of lift four. Uh, So, you've got mountain bike, terrain park, and we've got uh, the Via Ferrata. We also have scenic rides, so to be able to have it detachable makes that a lot of sense. Lift 2 is still a question. Lift 2 could go detachable, it could go fixed grip with a loading ramp. Um, We don't have a real capacity issue, so it'd probably be a little bit more comfort than anything else. So, Lift 2 is still, it'd probably be a quad, likely to be a quad, and we're still debating whether that's fixed or or detachable it's incredible how many people uh, ski at Taos and really like the pace of the skiing it, it's laid back you really feel the essence of of the sport the way it the way it was and being able to spend time with people so uh, it's not that long of a lift so we're still contemplating whether that's fixed grip or detach.
1: And then just on the other side there, you have Lift 7 and Lift 7A. Lift 7A is a really short one, a double. Uh, Talking about replacing those a little ways down the road, so so I'm not sure how advanced your thinking is on those. But any thoughts on Lift 7 and Lift 7A? I do
0: have thoughts. Lift 7 could be a a triple or a quad. Uh, I think we're leaning towards a quad just to get get a little bit more comfort. And Lift 7A, my hope is that we never replace it. It is a classic throwback with the lattice towers and it's, it's a beautiful short ride. It's, it, it's probably my favorite ride. Uh, for some reason you're heading, uh, North, whereas some of the lifts head South and the, the sky is a, is a deep purple and, uh, it's just a special lift. And, you know, I think to keep some of these classic lifts in place is is really, uh, great for the sport. So my goal never replace 7a. We'll work on it every year to keep it, functioning properly but seven could be either
1: triple or a quad in 7a do you find that you have short enough lines there that that you really don't need anything other than a fixed grip double yeah yeah no
0: there it just gets you back up on the ridges. There's, i mean if a, a line would be a, a 40 or 50 second wait, so we don't contend with lines very frequently on
1: lift 7a and then lift eight any plans in mind for lift eight
0: Yeah, Lift eight's a great lift, and we've got beautiful intermediate terrain, Stauffenberg Trail, Philophon's Trail. Uh, It's a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, this may be a lift that we run a detachable just to keep the ride time down. Hmm. And it would be a quad. Uh, I actually think you've got the sequencing, as you asked. Lift 4 will go next, probably Mm -hmm. then 2. And, and probably eight ahead of, ahead of seven.
1: Hmm, okay. And there, there had been talk in the past, but I didn't see any mention of this in the master plan, of a ridge lift for West Basin near lift eight. Is that still a possibility, or have you moved away from that idea? We
0: have moved away from that idea. Uh, West Basin is extraordinary terrain. We host the, uh, the free ride championships there, and it's, it's all hike to. So you take lift two and you hike into West Basin. It gets you to Wild West. It's, ext- it's, it's, it's extraordinary terrain. It's, it's, it's fun. It's exhilarating. And we think that a, a ridge lift would probably just overload that terrain and and likely end up with folks that really don't belong there. So we have eliminated the ridge lift from our new master development plan. I think that's kind of rare where we're moving from one plan to the next and actually taking some of the proposed lift alignments away.
1: Uh as you, as you look at the trail map, it as you said your your mountain footprint is what your mountain footprint is and that is not going to expand. Uh are, is there room to cut any new trails? Uh it sounds like your glading is ongoing, but as far as trails are are the trails set or do you or can you envision a place where it might be handy to have a a, a traverse or something else?
0: Yeah, no we no need to get into any traverse work. I think um try to avoid that actually. Uh, Philophons, we're doing some refinements to get a really nice race training venue. So a little bit of widening, a little bit of a little bit of grading on, on that one. Uh, Ernie's North American, excellent steep front line, uh, front side steeps. Uh, additional thinning as we go into these thinning projects. We're looking at the Minnesotas. A little bit east facing, so a little bit more challenging there. But perhaps there's something. Uh, on that side, that's the back side of the mountain. It's called the Minnesotas. It's below lift seven, but we'll we'll go slowly into there. Uh, so more or less, same Taos experience. Uh, picking up a little bit of glading here and there, but uh, no significant changes to the trail network.
1: You do have pretty a pretty good snowmaking plant for a western mountain. All of your greens and blues. Are covered as I understand it. Can you just talk a little bit about how you envision that system evolving as you as you move forward with this master plan. And, and 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 I would imagine that this connects back to your B certification and and wanting to have the most environmentally friendly, efficient, modern system that you can.
0: Yeah. Well, we've spent a lot of money on the on the snowmaking system over the last five years. We're probably putting close to half a million dollars a year in annually. So much more efficient system, high efficiency guns. We're lucky because we are high, we're dry, and we're north facing. So when we get the snow down, it stays. So I, I have never seen the type of retention, snow retention, that we have here in Taos. So uh, it's a very efficient system. We usually fire it up in, in late October. Uh, we have the ability to close it, shut it down late December, or early January, because the snow retention is so good. We don't have a freeze thaw. We don't get rain. Uh, we don't get warm winds. So uh, once we make it, it stays and it, it's a, it's a great supplement to mother nature. So uh, it's an excellent facility. We continue to improve on it annually. We've got three locations of intake take our water rights date back to 1809, which is incredible. And uh, you, we will keep it to the blue trails and the and the green trails on pieced blue and green a couple of black diamonds not many is where the coverage is and we're very pleased with it and, and and don't need to see a heck of a lot of expansion going forward other than getting that 5 million gallon storage tank in up high so that we've got um, you know so we can store the water during the the warmer temps and 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 really double down on usage during the cold temps
1: so as a real estate guy, David, I'm curious if there's any new buildings or facilities or or base area improvements that you want to talk about.
0: Well, we just completed the Blake Residences. Uh, so the Blake Hotel opened in 2017. It was a, it's been received very, very well. It's a 80-key hotel with uh, gosh museum quality artwork throughout and people fell in love with the Blakes. So we decided to create a Blake Residences, which is which is for sale whole ownership real estate with the same level of services that you get at the Blake. That building is now complete, mostly sold out. And across the street from there, we've got another parcel, we call it the Thunderbird site, uh, that we may break ground on 27 units uh, in the spring. But most notable is the the Hotel St. Bernard. This was built by Jean Maillet in 1960. Uh, he passed away last year, and prior to his passing, he reached out to our owner and asked if we would take that property over again to ensure the legacy of that property. So we are currently reviewing plans of what the what a what a renovated and updated Hotel Saint Bernard will look like. This is right on the slope, adjacent to Lift One, and um, again a, a classic ski in, ski out lodge. It's where the ski week originated. Check-in Saturday, check-out Saturday, six days straight of, of 10 a.m. to 12 noon skiing with uh, with me- meals at the lodge. So Jean Maillet is, again, a, a true legend of the sport. Uh, he has passed on, and it is, it is ours now to take that one forward. Uh, we're in the planning stages. I We won't break ground on anything or any type of renovation next year. It'll probably be twenty twenty. Uh, three before we do anything but that's that's a a significant project that will that'll will be uh, spending a little bit more time on in the
1: planning phases so much to love there for tower skiers it's so much to get excited about in the, in the coming decade or so. So so where are you at with all this, David, with with all the, the lifts and all the other improvements we talked about? Are you working with the Forest Service still? I, I, is there a green light you need to go ahead? When could we actually start to see you break ground on some of these lifts and, and put in this gondola and, and all these other things we've been talking about? So
0: we operate the majority of our resort on Forest Service land under a special use permit. And when you work under a special use permit, you need to upgrade your upgrade your master development plan once every six, eight, or 10 years. We are now entering the new phase. We call it the 2021 master development plan. It has been submitted to the Forest Service. It's in the process of becoming accepted. That means that the Forest Service agrees that the improvements being proposed are those in conformance and compliance with what is appropriate on the special use permit. And then we enter a NEPA process. We believe that the fact that there's not any change in boundary, there's not a lot of expansion, there's not a lot of new terrain, that the process should go very, very nicely. If things go well, we could see clearing of some of these lifts next year and installation of some of the lifts in 2023. Uh, We never know, but we are in the public process. We've had many open forums. We've met with uh, local groups, we met with pass holders, we met with our local. Uh, the Taos Pueblo, which is an indigenous nation. Uh, we've met with the, the Asequia groups. These are the, the groups that oversee the water irrigation systems throughout the region. So we've had a nice public process. We feel very good with where we are. And uh, again, if things go very well, we're starting to do some line clearing on the on the base space gondola next year. Uh, things could take a little longer. It could be two, three years out.
1: All right. Exciting stuff. Wishing you the best there. Are you facing any sort of uh, any, any kind of opposition of note?
0: Well, with respect to the gondola, we have more people saying let's get on with the show than we do. <laughs> uh, you know, why, why, why the new improvement? So we have a lot of support and with the forest service, they really like to see support that is, that is local. The closer it is to the action, uh, the, the more they like the comment in our case, the, the the locals, the, the people that reside in Towsky Valley are most supportive, specifically of the gondola. There are so many people supportive of the 5 million gallon water tank. They understand the importance of a water suppression system. The Forest Service loves the idea. So we are getting great uh, feedback and we're feeling pretty good. We think we've got a nice, manageable and reasonably scaled plan. So we're very uh, optimistic that this is going to go forward uh, nicely.
1: Love to hear it. All right, let's switch gears here and talk about passes. So, in twenty eighteen, Taoist joined the Icon Pass. Take us into your decision to join that coalition.
0: Well, it's been a great partnership. Uh, certainly, it's a great group of resorts to be affiliated with. Uh, it's a great group of people that that are managing those resorts. This whole world of passes—it's it, it's constantly evolving, and. Three or four years ago, when we made the decision, we thought it would be riskier not to join as the trends were not clearly established. We didn't know if people would be moving towards an Icon or an Epic type of pass. We didn't know if people would be staying with their home pass. Uh, We were members of Mountain Collective, and uh, many of the resorts uh, are similar. So we decided to move along with Icon. We're pleased that we made that decision. And and again our relationship with the with the team there at Alta- at Altera is very, very good. So um we plan to stay on for a while longer here. And right now our visitation is anywhere between, you know, it's seven, eight, nine, ten percent, which is a nice little uh, addition to our annual skier visits, but not so much that's becoming problematic for us.
1: Yeah, we, there was a lot of pushback across the West, especially in the Icon Pass's first couple of years in Jackson Hole and Aspen and Big Sky. You saw locals reacting really vocally and and really negatively to this influx of skiers from the Icon Pass. I haven't seen much of that coming out of Towers. It doesn't mean that it's not happening, Might um, be more localized. What's your perception of the locals' reaction to the Icon Pass arriving? Well, we have not seen
0: any of that pushback that you've seen at some of the larger resorts, uh, probably because we are a little bit smaller and probably because the the percentage of visitation is, is lower. So, you know, for us, so far so good. Uh, w- when we decided to go with ICON, we looked at some markets that were very important to us, one being Colorado and one being California. When you go through 20 years of losing market share, when you go through your revitalization, it's important to find the markets that w- that are going to work best for you. And uh, Colorado, right up the road, easy to get to, no I-70 crowding. And then California, which is, uh, you know, with our, with our new Taos Air service, uh, we call it the easiest route to the Rockies. So, um, so far we're pleased. And we have not had a lot of pushback. Uh, I think a lot of our locals recognize that an e- economically sustainable resort is is an important one. And, and still, we're not seeing a lot of crowding. Most of the time, we have very few or no lift lines, and we're doing everything we possibly can to, to manage that. So as long as we manage the crowds overall for the resort, I think we'll be in good shape.
1: And I have to imagine... Though that the Icon Pass has brought some people there that may not have visited otherwise. So I, I mentioned those numbers earlier. You were at 350,000 skier visits in the mid 90s, dropped to 160,000 20 years later. Where are you at today, or what numbers can you give us to show how that growth has come up again under Bacon?
0: Well, averaging all things, we're, we're, we're up considerably. We're up, you know, probably uh, 50, you know, 50. 50- Percent or more from the very low period. But, you know, if you're again, if you're to average things out, the five year trend prior to new ownership and the five year trend or, or where we are today under new ownership, we're up about 35 to 40 percent. We don't believe we'll ever get back to those figures of the early 90s. And we're not looking to, we're looking for a comfortable, uh, manageable level. Like, what is the right scale? And trying to uh, achieve economic sustainability while looking at environment, while looking at social responsibility, and while, while looking at the best experience for the guests. So um, we're, we are where we want to be. And the last year ahead of the COVID uh, scare, we were trending right where we wanted to be. Um, so, um, you know, our job is to try to figure out how to maintain that level of visitation. We've got a, a brand that the awareness is, is rapidly increasing. Uh, but, but we don't, we really don't want to, uh, we're not looking for, for massive growth and being able to to, to manage that visitation is, is probably going to be one of our, the biggest challenges we will have going forward.
1: All right. Let's, uh, before I let you go here, David, I do want to talk about the 2019 avalanche. So on January 17th, 2019, Two skiers, 22-year-old Corey Borg Massanari and 26-year-old Matthew Zongetti, were killed in an inbound avalanche at Taos. Um, you've had a couple of years to process this, to get through it. Uh, tell us how, how Taos is moving forward from that incident.
0: Well, it was a it was a horrible day for for us. It was a horrible day for the families that that lost Corey and Matthew, and. Uh, you know, we're almost, uh, we're we're a couple years since since that event happened. Uh, We are in contact with both families and we've actually created some some very nice friendships with Corey's family and Matthew's family. Uh, This week, Corey's family will be visiting for his birthday, which is September 15th. They'll come out, they'll get up on Kachina Peak and uh, pay a visit, probably probably head up on the Via Ferrata. We've, the, the, his family's been here now two or three times and we'll have a breakfast together, we'll, we'll, we'll gather, uh, we'll talk about Corey, and uh, what a great kid he was. And, and, uh, and Matthew's family, they're from the East Coast. Uh, both boys now have foundations. There's the Corey Borg Macenary Foundation, the Matthew Zongedi Foundation. Both of them are well-funded. Both of them are, are giving back to their communities in their own way, and it's, it's really special. We, we've learned that the, the best thing we can do for the families is to make sure that Corey and Matthew are not forgotten. They were not friends. They didn't know each other. They were just happened to be in the same trail the same, the same day. Uh, there's a trail named after Corey. It's called Shigon. There's a trail named after Matthew. It's called z -Z Shoot, And, uh, you know, to this day, I'll be up on the ridge and I'll get to those trails and I'll send a photo to to the parents just to let them know that that we're thinking of both Corey and Matt. Corey's Foundation is set up for uh, outdoor safety. And one of the primary missions is to be able to provide grants to ski patrol that are looking to bring on an avalanche dog. And the first avalanche dog, Finn, is now part of our team. And he was uh, picked up a couple months ago by one of our patrollers. He's in training. And hopefully, 12 to 18 months, he'll be a certified avalanche dog and, and part of our overall organization. Uh, next year, I believe the foundation will look to place the next or the next dog, possibly in Vail, where Corey had spent a lot of time. So. Uh, For us, maintaining the relationships, maintaining the legacy of Corey and Matt, these were adventurous, outdoor-minded, friendly uh, young men. And to bring their spirit forward is our commitment to the families, and, and we try to do that on a regular basis.
1: David, what can you tell us about those foundations? What are they called? If anyone listening wants to contribute to those, how can they do that?
0: Uh, Yes, it's the Matthew Zangetti Foundation and the Corey Borg Massenary Foundation. Um, The Matthew Zangetti Foundation is is developed to create grants for kids that come come out of the high school where he was in Mansfield, Massachusetts. He was a football star. He loved skiing. And... um, they are now issuing probably four or five or six grants every year for graduating high school students from Mansfield High. Uh, the Cory Borg Massenary Foundation, that's the name, and again it's for outdoor uh, recreational safety. So both foundations are alive and and well and well funded and boy, any type of contribution would be would be wonderful.
1: Well for anyone listening, I will be sure to include links to both of those foundations in the article that accompanies this podcast on the Storm Skiing Journal website, StormSkiing.com. So last question for you here, David, and, and then I'll let you go. We're, COVID's kind of going south again in, in wide parts of the country. Um, I'm not sure what it looks like in New Mexico right now, but I, I, I'm sure I'm not alone in once this last season ended, I was impressed that everyone got through it. Um, there were no shutdowns other than a, a two-week shutdown actually in New Mexico. And I'm, I'm not sure how that affected you in November because that's kind of the start of the season. But I, I kind of thought we were done with it, right? The masks and, and everything else. But it looks like we might be heading back into another season of social distancing and limited capacity and masks and lines, or, or maybe not. Um, things are kind of moving ahead regardless of what's COVID doing. So what's your sense as you're a couple months out from the season of how Taos is preparing, especially in light of, of how you ran the resort last season and what you're seeing going on around the country?
0: Yeah, well, we have to look at this as if COVID were here. It's it's so cyclical. It's up and it's down. It's, it's up and it's down. And uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we ran last year, uh, really a remarkable operation where we had we had test, We had screening daily of our staff and weekly testing, and we had a zero positivity rate for the entire winter. So we really hunkered down and followed the New Mexico safe COVID practices and, and ran a good operation. So we hope to do again the same this year. The few quick things I would say is, you know, outdoors is the place to be and in, indoors is not. Uh, so, uh, and, and New Mexico had a 14 day quarantine. We're working with the state right now to ensure that that quarantine does not go in place. We think that proper, proper management is what is required. Uh, we also believe that there'll be no restrictions, capacity restrictions on the mountain. We had those last winter. So on mountain, we're feeling very, very comfortable indoors. We're anticipating, uh, a a, a very different situation at the Rio Hondo Learning Center where there's children, high level of uh, capacity restrictions, high level of COVID safe practices. Restaurants the same. I think we're going to be vaccination only in the restaurants. Uh, The hotel should be able to operate at 100%. Lockers will be able to modify. Uh, And we do think that daily screening of our staff and weekly testing of the staff will also be important. So we learned a lot last winter. There's a lot we can take forward. Uh, a good portion of the on mountain ski operation should, you know, kind of be business as usual. And it's the base area indoor facilities where we'll have to pay the the additional attention and really try to stay ahead of this uh, to avoid any any type of spread or any type of uh, super spreader type event.
1: Well, lots to figure out still, but I, I, I think you're probably much better positioned for it this year than you were at this time last year. So wishing you the best of luck for another another healthy season, David. And uh, I thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Stuart. I really enjoyed it.
1: That's David Norton, CEO of Towski Valley. Really incredible to hear everything going on at Taos listening to that you can see that the rest of the ski world has a lot of catching up to do as far as getting in sync with the environment and ironing out good relationships with their neighbors taos is where everyone else wants to be if you're a taos skier you've got to like what you hear there and do not put that place on your list so thank you very much for breaking all that down for us david and thank you all for listening this is the first of many podcasts i have lined up for the fall You are going to hear from the people who run Aspen Snowmass, China Peak, Boyne Mountain, Crystal Mountain, Washington, Ski Cooper, Shawnee, Maine, Jackson Hole, Wachusett, Steamboat, and more. Again, to get those in your inbox the moment they're live and to get the full experience of the storm, you really need to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing Newsletter at StormSkiing.com. You can also follow along on Twitter or Instagram at StormSki Journal you can also find The Storm on Facebook. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a
0: Quicksilver Films production.